tonight. So if you have a Bible, you can open it at this time to the book of Joshua. And if you need a Bible, then just lift your hand and the ushers are coming down the aisles as we speak and they will drop a Bible off to you so that you can follow along with us in our study of this brand, well, it's not a brand new book. It's brand new to us, you know, as we begin our study of it. Now, not only are we beginning a new book tonight as we begin the book of Joshua, but we are also entering into a new section of the Bible. As we finish Deuteronomy, we leave what is known as the Torah or the Pentateuch or the five, that is the five books that were authored, penned by Moses And with Joshua begins the second segment of the Bible known as the historical books or the history of Israel. So it's a whole new section of the Bible tonight as Joshua starts for us that section. Now, any time that you're going to study the Bible or read the Bible or try to, uh, you know, experience Scripture... The question that always has to be asked is, why? Why would we take the time to study the history of Israel? Is it just so that we can gain information about something that happened a long time ago that God did? Or is there something that God wants to impart into our lives to work in us something of revealing more of who he is to us perfecting his will and his plan that he has for our lives individually, or to conform us into the image of Christ. Jesus, when he was speaking with the Pharisees on one occasion, he he gave them this indictment. He said to them, it's John chapter 5, verse 39, he said, you search the scriptures. Now that's good. That's what we're doing right now. We're with Bible open, pen in hand, notebook, and we're paying attention because we're searching the scriptures, and it's good to search the scriptures. But Jesus went on to say, you search the scriptures because in them, in them, in them, you think you have eternal life. In other words, they were studying the scriptures, and the scriptures were for them the end. You study them because you think that in them you have eternal life. But he said, you're falling short of what the true intent of the scripture is. He said, they are they, the scriptures are they, or that which testifies of me. In other words, the purpose of Bible study, whether it's Moses or Joshua or New Testament epistles or theology, any Bible study, the reason for it is not that we might gain information of what's there, what's written, but rather that there would be an impartation of those principles, those things that God would have us to glean so that we can know him, be in the very center of his will for our lives, and become more Christ-like, that we would be transformed into the image of his son. So the question remains, what does a study of Israel's history and of the book of Joshua, what is it that the Holy Spirit would seek to impart or invest in our lives as Christians in New Testament times that would make a study like this potent, impacting, or worth our while? The answer 
is that this, is that as we study and understand Israel's history, the way that God created, established, and then developed that nation, we realize that that was, you know, a literal thing that God did. He really did have a nation, Israel. He really did bring them out of Egypt miraculously. He really did bring them into the promised land. It was literal. But what we also discover is that it also is a metaphor or a model of what God does in the individual Christian life as he enters into relationship with us. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. There are basically five stages of Israel's development and Israel's existence in their relationship with God. And those five stages have a correlative partner in our relationship with God as New Testament Christians individually. The first stage in Israel's history is their uh, Egypt bondage. And you know the story. If you've seen uh, you know, any of the old-time movies or if you've been around the Bible at all or if you're a history student, you know that Israel was in Egypt for 400 years as slaves under the hand of a pharaoh. And there they were forced to labor. They built the pyramids and had to bake bricks and do those things uh, there. They were without their own land. They were under the dictates of a, 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 of a you know, demonic pharaoh, literally. And, and they had to do what he said. They were slaves in Egypt. And for the Christian person, that stage represents what we were before we met Christ. We were slaves. We were in bondage in, in the world. We were under the dictates of our flesh and of the king of this world, Satan. You know, and, and we had no choice. We were lost without God at that time. And, and it's, there's a correlation there between the two. But then the second stage of Israel's existence and development was the Exodus. Where they were, by a deliverer, Moses, brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea... The shackles of the Pharaoh were broken and they were delivered. They were freed from that. They were saved from that bondage, set free. For the Christian, for you and me, that represents our deliverer, Jesus, and how he saved us. And when we were saved and we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, we were set free from the bondage of this world and the dictates of Satan and of our flesh. And we were baptized, and Paul, the apostle, actually says that baptism is like what happened to them in the Red Sea. They passed through the waters, but they came out alive. And that's what happens in baptism. We're baptized into Christ. We go under the water, and we're crucified with him there. But we come up out of the water, and we live, but the life that we now live is in him, and no longer according to what we once were. And so the exodus that they experienced correlates with the salvation through Christ that we experience. Well, the third stage of their development, their relationship with God, was Mount Sinai. They came to Mount Sinai, and it was there that they received the law. And Moses went up, and God spoke from heaven, and the laws of God, his requirements, his will, his ways were written in tables of stone and then presented to the people, and they began to learn who God was, and who they were, and what was required of them. 
At the same time, you and I, we are baptized, we're saved, and all of a sudden we begin to wonder, we begin to learn who this God is. We, we come to church and Bible study and we start to read scripture for ourselves and, and all of a sudden we begin to get to know who God is. And we start to understand something about ourselves. And we begin to learn what is required of us as we read God's word and we see who he is and, and his will begins to very foggily, shadily come into focus as we begin to see from a distance what it is that he's doing in our lives. But see, this stage, Sinai, presents a problem. Not just for them, but for us too. Not for Israel, but for us. And here's what it is. Here's the problem with Sinai, with the law. The problem is that though the law reveals who God is and tells us what's required, the law does not provide for us the power to keep what it demands. And so we know what we're supposed to do, and we want to do what we're supposed to do, but we don't possess the strength or the ability to do what we're supposed to do. And for them, that translated into the third, or fourth rather, the fourth stage of their development, their existence as a nation, and that was their wilderness wanderings. For 40 years, they wandered throughout the Sinai Peninsula, making no progress in their development or in their relationship with God. They were saved, they were provided for, they were loved, but they went nowhere. They were unstable. They went back and forth. Any bit of excess energy or resource was wasted because they didn't have any place to plant their roots. And so their existence was futile. For those 40 years, it was essentially a waste. And the same thing can happen for many Christians. They come to know the Lord. They're saved. They're loved. They're going to heaven. Their sins are forgiven. But because they're wandering in the wilderness, their Christianity is more or less representative of a roller coaster ride. There's just a series of highs and lows. I'm doing really good with the Lord right now as I put forth effort and, you know, I went to a conference or I just came out of church, but then I go into the work week and temptation comes and I don't find the strength to do what I'm supposed to do. And so I'm less saved now than I was when I was in church on Sunday or right after. But then a prayer meeting happens or God speaks through the word and you're back up on the pinnacle again and you say, yes, Lord, this is what it's all about. But then right back down and, and it's just a cycle of mountains and valleys. You're saved, but you're not progressing at all in your relationship with God. Your Christian life is marked with instability, with frustration, with fatigue, and with this aching feeling somewhere inside that there's got to be more. There's got to be more to this Christian experience than what I'm experiencing. And that's what the wilderness wanderings were for Israel. And that's what it is for the Christian. But then there's number five. And number five is the entrance into the promised land. When they come out of the wilderness after wandering for 40 years. And they now come into the land that God had promised to give them through Abraham before they even existed as a nation. And here's what we discover. Here's the beauty of stage five, the promised land. Here it is. Is that this was the intention and the will of God for them from the very beginning. 
that when God called Abraham and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, he didn't say, I'm going to bless you and you're going to wander for 40 years. He didn't say, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be at the base of Mount Sinai where you're going to hear laws and commands that you don't have power to keep. He said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bring you into a land that's flowing with milk and honey, a good land. The land of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, a good land, God said. And that's my promise, that I'm going to bring you into stability, I'm going to bring you into blessing, I'm going to bring you into prosperity, and I'm going to do for you what it is that I have destined for you. I'm going to bring you into blessing. And that stage five also correlates into the Christian life. Is that God's perfect will for his people, for you and for me, is not that we would wander. Not that we would live in frustration trying to do something that we don't possess the power to do. Living in constant cycle of high and low, up and down as we ride the roller coaster of Christian faith. But that he might bring us into the place of stability. That he'd bring us into the land of blessing that we might discover for our lives individually what it is that God made us to be, what he wanted us to do, what's going to bring him glory and bring us joy. It's the promised land. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've heard a lot of songs in church growing up. And the promised land is, the promised land is heaven, isn't it? I mean, when I die, you know, the, the, the chariot's going to come and carry me home, and I'll go over Jordan, and what will I see? It, it, it isn't the promised land. Doesn't that speak of our ultimate destination of heaven? No, it doesn't. You say, what? what do you mean, no? Listen, the promised land for them was a land of great blessing and, and great joy, but it wasn't heaven. There were battles to fight. There were victories they would have, but there was also defeats. There was great joy, but there were also great trials. And if the promised land is for us a picture of heaven, well, I'm not sure. See, no, the promised land doesn't represent our ultimate destination and glory. What the promised land scripturally represents, it represents you and I entering into the fullness of God's blessing and God's plan for our lives in our relationship with him and in our service to him here on earth. God has something for each one of us. He didn't save us to wander. He didn't save us to be shifting back and forth, to just be fighting against the flow our whole lives, living in frustration, waiting for him to come. But he wants to show himself strong on behalf of his people. And he wants to bring us into that land. The book of Joshua and a study of the book of Joshua is an examination of that fifth and final stage of the Christian life. That is, coming into the fullness of what God has for each one of us. To live this Christian life and then to realize that it's God's ultimate intention. Listen to me, church. That when God saved you, his ultimate intention was to bring you into that land. Just like it was for Israel when he spoke to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. God looks at your life when he saves you on that day and he says, I've got territory for you to take. I've got blessing and bounty and wonder and glory for you to experience in heaven, yes, 
but on earth too. And my will for you is that I bring you into that place and that you're prepared and ready and able to receive it and hang on to it. And so Joshua is the study of the victorious, fruitful, blessed Christian life. That thing that we all long for and gladly the thing that God wants for us even more than we want it for ourselves. The victorious Christian life. How do we live that life? And so we begin the study of the book of Joshua. Now chapter 1 of Joshua deals with two things. Number one, the call of God upon Joshua's life and then the preparation for them to get ready to go into the land. And so uh, we begin in verse 1, the call of Joshua. If you would look with me, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. And so we have the call that God places upon Joshua's life to be Moses' successor in leading the people of Israel into the land to obtain their inheritance. And as we consider this man that was called of God and chosen by God to do this task, we observe a couple of things about it, and it applies to us too as God would speak to us concerning our calling and the thing that he has for us. The first thing that we recognize, that we realize as we consider Joshua, is the necessity of the preparation. The necessity of the preparation. You see, if you're just entering into the study right now and you know nothing about what took place with Joshua in, you know, his past during the life of Moses, you might think that God just came to Israel one day and he looked at the whole congregation and he just went, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by the two. And then you, Joshua, you're going to be the one that I'm going to use. Now listen, God could do that. Sometimes, don't you think that God would would be a lot wiser to just use angels to do his work and not people, you know? But God delights to use us. He wants to use our lives. And so God had this calling upon Joshua. What we discover as we consider his life is that this wasn't something that was just, you know, flying by night like God just says, okay, Joshua. But we discover that Joshua had long been prepared for this calling, this thing that God was doing in his life. The first time that we meet Joshua in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 17. Israel had just come out of Egypt. They had been to Mount Sinai where God spoke to them. And as they just begin their journey now away from Mount Sinai, the Bible tells us they were in a weakened and vulnerable state. They had eaten, but they hadn't had water for a couple of days. And, and here God provides water for them out of the rock. He comes through, but as they leave that place, the Bible tells us that Amalek, the Amalekites, one of Israel's enemies, came out and sought to destroy Israel in their weakened state when they were at their most vulnerable point. They thought, we're not going to let these people take over the world, we're going to wipe them out right now. 
And so Moses, the Bible tells us, he called Joshua and he said, Joshua, gather the men together and go down into the valley and fight. And Joshua's first place in Israel was that he was the general, the leader of their military. And so Joshua is sent down in the valley to fight against Amalek. And Moses said this. He said, I'm going to stay up here on the hill. And I'm going to pray for you. And Aaron and her, my helpers, we're going to stay up here. And we're going to pray that God would give you victory down there in the valley as you're fighting with Amalek. And the Bible tells us something very interesting about that battle. The Bible tells us that as long as Moses' hands were raised to heaven, the staff in his hand and his other hand raised high and he was interceding for Israel, it says that Israel prevailed. So Moses' hands up, Israel's winning the battle. But what happened is Moses' hands got heavy. They got tired. And it says that when his hands got heavy and began to fall, it says that Amalek prevailed. And and they watched this happen for a while. Now, if I was Moses, I probably would have been like, this is great, watch this. You know, I don't really like that guy, you know. Yeah, okay. You know, you know, but 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 he he was basically the battle was going along with the the strength of his hands in the air. And so the Bible says that Aaron and her because Moses' hands were heavy, they came and one on one side, one on the other, they propped Moses' arms up so that they were continually held up throughout the battle. And the Bible tells us that Joshua and Israel prevailed. They won that battle against Amalek, and then God spoke to Moses. And he said, Moses, I want you to write this down, and then I want you to rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. God said that specifically. Rehearse this in the ears of Joshua. Make sure he always remembers what took place this day. And for Joshua, that would be a very significant thing. Because from his perspective, here's what he learned that day as the military leader of Israel. He learned that the battle had nothing to do with the strength of his hands or the skill of his army or the number of the soldiers or of any other thing that was with them that day, but that the strength of that battle had to do with what was going on up on the hill. And up on the hill, as Joshua would look from a distance, he would see one singular image. He would see three men stationary, and the man in the middle would have his hands raised. A perfect picture of what every person of God would face in battle forever, that the battle doesn't belong to the strong. It doesn't belong to the resourceful. It belongs to the one who has the man in the middle with his arms raised on his side, interceding for them. And Joshua learned that day that that that's how a battle is won. And little did he know at that time that he would lead Israel one day into the greatest battle that they would ever face as they would go into the land and they would have to fight in order to take the thing that God was giving to them. And he learned that the battle belongs to the Lord. And he would need to know that. And so God prepared Joshua for that battle there uh, in that day we also discover from joshua's history is that he was a man who knew how to seek the lord that he was one that when moses went up the mountain joshua was always at his right hand that when moses heard the voice of god and received the instructions for the tabernacle and the laws that would be given to the people that joshua was right there at his side and god knew that he would need to know how to seek him 
for direction as it concerned his nation, his people, his inheritance. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, the Bible tells us that Moses and Joshua had been in the tabernacle seeking the Lord. And it says that Moses departed from the tabernacle, but Joshua did not depart from the tabernacle. That he was a person who sought the Lord, that he knew where to go for counsel, and he knew where to go for strength. And little did he know that one day God would put him in a position where he would need to know those things. That the battle belongs to the Lord, that counsel comes from the Lord, and our refuge is in the Lord. So God had prepared Joshua for a long time for the position that he would one day come into at the death of Moses. Sometimes the lessons that we learn in life as God prepares us for what it is that he has for us are very difficult. Sometimes the things that we face are so heavy we think that this is impossible. I don't don't think this is humanly right that a person should have to go through these things no matter what it is that God is trying to teach me or what he's doing. And it's true. Sometimes those lessons are extremely difficult that God teaches us as he prepares us. But can I tell you something that's even more difficult than some of the lessons that we learn in life? Is coming into the position or the place that God ultimately has for us and not being prepared for it. That's even harder. And so God will do what is necessary in our lives in order to equip us and prepare us for the thing that he ultimately destined for us to do. And that's an important thing for us to understand because sometimes the trials and the difficulties of life don't make sense, but they make sense to God because he sees what's going to happen 10 years from now and he knows what we need and he's able to equip us for those things. We also understand from Joshua's calling as we look here in the text that there is completion that is necessary. Notice there in verse 2 it says that Moses, my servant, is dead. That Moses is dead. Is dead. And here's what we realize from this is that Joshua, rather, Joshua cannot move from the category of preparation to the category of completion until the time is right. You see, Joshua has been being prepared for a long time, God's been doing a lot in his life. But it isn't until Moses dies that God now looks at Joshua and says, okay, Moses, I mean, Joshua, this is now go time. You're coming into that position. You're going to lead the people, the people of Israel. Now, it could well be that Joshua was ready, equipped, able, competent a long time before Moses died. But it wasn't God's timing yet, and he had to wait. I think one of the most frustrating things in the Christian life, in in the life of any person of God, is the time gap that often exists between the promise that God gives or the call that God has upon our lives and the time when it's ready for us to then enter in and begin that purpose or that call that God has. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, he he gives us a promise. He gives us a desire. He plants something in us. And and we're like, yes, Lord, that makes sense. That's what I was made for. When? You you know, and and, and he's like, just wait on me. We're like, all right, I'll wait. You know, and a year goes by, two years goes by. And it seems like we're getting further away from what it is that we're waiting for than closer. And we say, Lord, what in the world are you doing? And and then, then all of a sudden he's quiet, you know. 
you know, and we're like, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? And there's this time and we say, Lord, what is going on? Because I, I feel like I'm ready. I'm able, I'm wanting, I'm chopping at the bit. Why is it that you're, with, you're withholding? And God says, it's not time yet. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one says this. It says, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a time for every purpose. See, purpose is with us. I know, Lord, what it is that I want to do. I know what it is that you've called me to do. And I'm ready. I'm, I'm waiting for that moment, Lord. Purpose is with us, but time is with him. And it isn't until time and purpose come together that we begin to see God do in our lives or through our lives the things that we've been waiting and wanting him to do. And that's frustrating. But when time and purpose meet together, at that point, and that point will come, there is an explosion of fruitfulness and blessing that is unmatched and unparalleled by anything that this life can offer. So hang in there. Hang in there because he's preparing you. And maybe you say, well, I've been prepared. I mean, I've got the scars to show it. Then wait on him because his timing is perfect. It's always perfect. It's always right. It wasn't until Moses died that God said to Joshua, now the time is ready. But then notice this, and this should give us great hope. And this is in verse three concerning this call. And this is the invincibility. Read it again. It says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you as I said to Moses. The idea is this, is that once God moves Joshua into this place that he's prepared him for, there is nothing that will be able to move him out of it. That once God moves you into the thing that he ultimately created you for, he is not going to then remove it or allow something to come in and sabotage it or take it away from you. I think it's a common fear that many Christians have. And that is that, okay, the blessing of God is finally coming upon my life. Is he going to take it away? Or or is something going to happen where someone is going to come in and, you know, sideswipe me in some way and sabotage what God has done and what he's doing and steal my blessing from me? Look, God didn't prepare and call and, you know, do all these things in Joshua's life to move him into a position to hang it over him like a dog biscuit and say, okay, now you better be careful. Sometimes the very things that God puts us through in our time of preparation are so that we won't lose the thing that God ultimately does for us when we come into his perfect will. Do you understand? See, I, I see my son, and, and, and he's great. He's, uh, I don't know how old he is, nine or something. My wife knows. That's why we're one. You know, she gets to handle certain things. I handle other things. But he's about that age, you know. And, and, and I love him he, because, and here's why, here, in, in this context. I love him for a lot of reasons. But I love watching him because he, he likes to take care of his stuff. And so he, I see him outside sometimes, and he's cleaning off his baseball, his bases. You know, he's got just the bases. It's to it's be stood upon. That's what you do with these things. They're bases. But he'll clean them. And then if, he, if there's rain in the forecast, he'll go outside, and he'll take sleds, and he'll cover his bases, you know, to make sure that they... And, and he just loves to take care of stuff. And, and so I look at that, and as a father observing a son, he doesn't even know that I'm looking. I say, you know what? I like what I'm seeing in him. I can trust him with stuff. Because he takes care of it, see? I didn't, I still don't get that. I'm learning. You know, he's got it. I don't know where, he must have got it from Georgia or something, you know. 
but, but here's what happens then, is that now we go to Dick's Sporting Goods, and that's what he asks for. when he, It's a birthday, Christmas, he wants gift cards. You know? So he's got like, I don't even know how much money, saved up, and he's very shrewd. So he, he waits a long time, and he does his homework, and he spends his money so carefully. So finally, he selects a couple of things that he wants. You know? And so we go there, and he chooses them out, and he makes sure, and we go up to the register, and I see him there, and I know him, and I love him. And so I said, you know what, son? Don't use your gift card. I'm going to buy those things for you. you know. And, and, and I swipe the card, and I see his face just light up. And he's like, wow, Dad, really? And I say, you know what, son? I'm just proud of you. I like the things that are going on in your life. I, you have a, a great work ethic, a great attitude, the things that you're doing, the way. And, and I just, I can't let you pay for this. And isn't that the heart of our Father in heaven? And, and, and see, here's what happens, is that he's preparing us. He's teaching us lessons. He's letting us suffer. He's letting things happen. And and there's change taking place within our lives. And the byproduct of that change and of the fruit of his work within our lives allows him to do in our lives the things that he wants to do because he says, you know what? They're not going to squander it. They're not going to take the blessing that I give and waste it or use it to turn away from me or in prosperity forsake me. But they are devoted. Their their heart is right. And you see, so what the point is this, is that when God brings you in, he's not going to take it from you. He's been preparing you for that. He's been waiting to do that in your life. And so he's going to sustain you in the thing that he's put you in, and nothing's going to be able to stand before you. There's an invincibility to it, a security in the call that God has upon Joshua, the call that he has upon us. Verse 4, he gets into the territory that they're to take. He says, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, this shall be your territory. Now, if you were to look at this on a Bible map, the amount of land that God promises to give to them is immense. It's 10 times greater than the amount of land that they ever had, even at their apex. This land goes from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. And it includes all of what is present-day Israel, parts of what is present-day Jordan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Lebanon. And that's the land that God had promised to them, the territory that he said that they would be able to take that would belong to them. What we see is that they never possessed all. In fact, it was about 10% of what God promised that they possessed at the time that they possessed it. God said that it's going to be a good land. And that is a good land. I mean, if you just look at the news today, and you see the amount of conflict that goes on over that land, and who's going to control it, and who has dibs and rights to it, it's a good land. It's good in terms of the, you know... uh, trade routes that it possesses. It connects the east from the west, you know, right there by the Mediterranean Sea. The weather in that region is good. It's a very arid region. But because it's on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, it's, it's just like lake effect, you know, around the Great Lakes. There's always rain in that area. There's plenty of rain because of where it is situated. So in weather-wise, it's great for agriculture. The climate there is very pleasant. It's, even in the winter there, they don't get like the harsh winters we get, you know, and it's just a nice place. It's pleasant. 
There's oil in that land, you know, in wealth, in abundance, in the ground uh, because of it. And it's a great, uh, it's very defensible. So there's great advantages to that land. And God said, it's a good land. And here's the thing about that land. God says this. He says, there is more of it. There's more territory to be taken than you will ever take or be able to take. Now translate that into are venturing into the promised land, the territory that God has given for us. He calls it a good land. The territory that God's prepared for us is not a physical place like it was for them. But rather, our territory in this relationship we have with God is our venturing into, standing upon and enjoying all of the promises that God has laid out for us in Scripture. That is our promised land. So our, pro, or our land that God has given to us, he promises that he's going to give to us strength. How many of us need strength? How many times do you feel like you're lacking in strength, that, that there's not enough strength to match the activities and the duties and the demands of the day? But God promises to give us strength. He promises that he's going to provide all of our needs. That we don't have to worry about where the money is going to come from to pay for the things that we have need of. He says he's going to provide. It's a promise that he gives. He promises that he's going to uh, give us power to live the life that he called us into, power by his Holy Spirit. That when we ask God to give us of his spirit to do what we cannot, that he's going to supply that power that we need. It's a supernatural life that he calls us into. He promises us that we, listen, I love this one. He promises us that we don't have to take anxious thoughts. In fact, Jesus used those words verbatim. He said five times in Matthew chapter 7, take no anxious thought. That's a command. Take no anxious thought. That means this. It means when an anxious thought is coming at you, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? How are you? And then boom, it hits you and you take it. Ah, I don't know, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, or, 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 you know, there's, there's a coronavirus going around, and you're, ah, you know, I don't want, and all of a sudden, and here's what, here's what God is telling you. It's a promise, but it's a command. He says this, he says, don't take it. Here comes the anxious thought. Oh, the dollar's going to destroy, oh, the dollar's gone, you know, and, and, and here's, don't take it. I don't have to take, I have permission from God not to take that thought. I don't have to do it. It's a promise that he's given to me in Scripture. He's given other promises. He says that he's going to finish the work that he began within your life. That he saved you, he purchased you, he redeemed you, and now he's going to be faithful to do everything in your life that he's promised to do. It's a promise that he gives to you. He promises that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. That he's going to be with you. That he's available to you. An ever-present help in time of trouble. And the Bible promises that he's going to prosper you, that he's going to withhold no good thing from you. Now, that is, that is the microscopic tip of the iceberg of what Bible promises are. And here's the hope that we have, the truth that we stand upon, is that there is more territory to take spiritually, emotionally, physically. There is more territory for us to take than we could ever take in 10 lifetimes. And so here's what happens is that here's a promise of God and it's territory that you don't currently possess, but you say, I want that land. 
and I'm going to go take it. And it's almost like someone that's standing uh, and holding onto the trunk of a tree, and they're looking at this limb, this limb of God's promises that, okay, I don't have to take an anxious thought. And as you look at it, you say, but I'm not sure if it's going to hold me. You know, I see, I see other people, you know, standing on that one, but I weigh a lot more than they do. And, and I just, I mean, it's a great, it's a, it seems like a sturdy branch, but I, I don't know. And, and you start and you, and you go out and you stand on that limb and you say, whoa, whoa, it's holding me. It works, it works. And the idea is that you can live your life, listen to this, you can live your life unprepared for those promises to fail. You say, whoa, wait, whoa, say that again. Yeah, unprepared for those promises to fail. See, the way we live our lives is that we live in a constant state where we are prepared for those promises to fail. Well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I know God says he's going to provide, but just in case he doesn't, I need to have this, 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 and this all lined up because, you know, I don't know, there's no guarantees in life. See, I, I know he promises that he's going to finish the work that he began in my life, but I know I need to help him out a little bit because that might not. And so what we do is we tie ourselves off to the trunk and we say, now I'll stand on the promise of God. But we're really not standing on the promise of God. We're leaning upon our own understanding so often. And so God has territory for us to take. He says, you can take that territory. I've provided it for you. I want to move you into that land so that you can stand upon it and enjoy the byproduct of the life it gives. It's the promises of God. It's the territory of the Christian faith. Well, he gives to him a promise along with that territory in verse 5. He says this. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. He promises him that he's going to give him victory. That in every area that you venture out to take God at his word and take him up upon the things that he says, you will find God's faithfulness in those things. You will stand upon those things. No one will stand before you. There is no opposing force that will be able to stop you from entering into what God has for your life. He then promises in the second half of verse 5, he says, And as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Not only will you have victory, but you will have my presence with you as well. You know that that's really the icing on this cake of Christian life? See, it isn't about what God's going to do for us or where he's going to bring us or the promises that he's going to provide. It's about the fact that he's with us. That's what makes it good. See, the worst situation that you could ever be in physically with God is better than the best situation you could ever be in physically without God. Look at the rich people of this world. They have everything that they could ever want, but yet they're miserable, and it's never enough. No matter how much they try to shove into their soul, their soul is always that much more empty, and they don't have the thing that they're wanting. But when you have the Lord, whatever little you might have, you have it with satisfaction, and it's an abundance to you because you're able to enjoy the things that he provides, and you have thanksgiving. We were, I, I don't know if I told the story. I hope I'm not getting that old. We were, tell me after the service or just laugh, you know, but we were walking through, we were walking through the woods, um, you know, the family, we were hiking and, and it was just one of those spring days. Everything's blossoming, you know, you smell the freshness in the air, the sun is hitting your skin and it's like, I can't believe I'm alive. I thought I was dead after all those winter months. And, and we were walking through that and I looked at my kids and I looked at my wife and I said, can you imagine being here and smelling this and seeing all that God has made and not knowing who to thank. 
I just, to me, that breaks my heart. And I see these people hiking and, and I wonder, do you even know what it is that you have? What's available to you? We have the Lord. We have the God of all flesh. And he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's no greater treasure than that. Not in all the world or in any world, in any place or in any imagination. He says, I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in verse six, the third part of the promise, he says, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And here it is, the third part of this promise is that you are going to have influence. Not only will you be victorious, not only will you experience my presence, but you will also carry influence. And here's what that means. And here's what it means for you, Christian. It means this. It means that as you enter into what God has for your life, as you enjoy the fruit of his blessing upon your life, that is going to encourage and influence others around you to enter in and take it for themselves as well. They're going to look at your life and they're going to say, I don't know what it is about you, but I want what you've got. I don't know where you got the territory you have, but I want the territory. And then they come to you and they say, how do I get it? And you say, this is how you do it and you bring them to the lord and that's what he says that these people are going to enter into the inheritance with you joshua you shall divide as an inheritance the land which i swear to your fathers to give them but then it comes with the condition and here's the condition in verses seven through nine the instructions that he gives notice in verse seven he says only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do According to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. He tells him, first of all, he says, But Joshua... Only you be strong and very courageous. The first condition that God lays before Joshua as it pertains to this victory, this taking of the possession and of the promise of God, he tells him to be strong and courageous. That word strong in the Hebrew language, it means to fasten upon, to seize, and to conquer. To fasten upon, in other words, that you see it with your eyes. And then to seize it in your mind and then to get it or take it with your action. It's not a half-hearted vision. It's not an apprehensive wondering. It's not an unsure look. But it's having full persuasion in your mind that God is going to do the thing that he has promised to do. That's what it means to be strong. We might use the word motivated. As though God is saying to Joshua, be motivated. And then he says to be courageous. The word courageous means to be bold, to be stout, to be brave, and to be unmovable. And the idea is that that there be nothing that will deter you from entering in and taking the thing that God has promised. And we might use the word resolute. And so you could actually write those words in your margin if you wanted there where he says to him, be strong and courageous. You could say, be motivated and be resolute. And here's what you're to be motivated and resolute about. And that is this, is that you see the prize of being what God has created you to be 
coupled with the understanding that he is willing and wanting that for you and that he's able to bring you into it and that you're going to do what you have to do to get it. That you're motivated. Now, we see people do that in the world all the time. They're motivated and resolute to build up their retirement account. They see the prize of having that built up to a certain point, and they're resolute in their determination to go get it. And they do it, and we see it. There's people that are motivated and resolute to go after fame, to live after pleasure, to make a name for themselves, or to do any number of things. We know what that looks like, but what God is commanding Joshua to do, he's saying, Joshua, you're to esteem the prize of having and being all that I've called you to have and be, you're to see it and comprehend it and understand it, and then you're to go get it. And he's telling them to be motivated and resolute about the one thing in life that can produce the thing that it promises. And he says, you're going to have to have that kind of mindset, uh, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Go after it. See it in your mind. Understand the prize that it is to be in my will and to know my voice and to hear my words and to do my, you know, bidding. And he says, now do it. Now go get it and live it, Joshua. This is what I'm calling you to do. You say, well, what kind of obstacles are going to seek to deter me? I mean, if I need this kind of boldness, if I need this kind of, you know, resolution that I'm going to do this thing, what am I facing? Well, you, Christian, what are you facing? Well, first of all, you're facing people that are going to bring opposition in your, in your face. <laughs> you're a Christian. Hey, where, where were you last night? Oh, I was at, um, well, I was at church. <laughs> you were at church? You went to church twice? You went to church more than once? You know, and, and people begin to say things about you. They begin to make fun of you. They begin to persecute. It, it's an obstacle. But what do you do? Where do you stand? Yeah, I was in church. Is your faith shaken? Is your joy moved? What other obstacles? Well, what about the giants? There were giants in the land for them. There's giants in our lives as well. You say, well, there's things in my life that I've never been able to defeat. Things that have kept me down for years. Fears, anxieties, addictions, dependencies. Things that I've never been able to, to, to defeat. God says you're to be resolute and strong and nothing will be able to stop you. But be motivated. Say, I'm going to have this. I'm not going to let anything take, take it away from me. And then he says the second condition is obedience. He says in verse 7b, he says, Observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. For this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do all uh, according to all that is written in it, that you're to be obedient to the Lord. You're to be obedient in three ways. You're to be obedient in what you believe. He says, don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Don't water it down or explain it away. And don't turn to the right. Don't make it confusing and complex and more than what God intended when he wrote it. But you believe what is written right there in the word of God. And then you're to believe it also in your, or I mean you're to obey it also in your mind. He uses the word meditation there in verse 8. That you're to meditate in it day and night. And that is that it's to be the thing that permeates your thinking and what you are. 
Like it says in Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And God says that that's what it's to be in your mind, that the word of God is to be your meditation, and it's to be what you draw from in your roots. I remember reading in David. Remember, you ever read David's life? And it says, you know, I might be crazy, you know, but I read David where it says that he behaved himself wisely in the presence of King Saul. And Saul took notice that he behaved himself wisely. And I remember reading that and just saying, oh, how I wish I could have a conversation with David and say, what does that mean? What did you do that, that they looked and said you behaved? And I know, I know now what David's answer would be. He would say, just do what God says. You want to be known as someone who behaves wisely, who handles themselves correctly, who lines themselves up for future blessing? Here's how you do it. Just obey the Lord. Whatever it is, in whatever situation, circumstance you're in, just do what God says. That's wisdom. And you're going to see it. And then number three is in action. He says, observe to do it. Don't just be a hearer, but be a doer of it. And then the result of it, he says, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. The word prosperous means you'll push forward, you'll advance, you're going to make progress, you're going to prosper. And the word success means to be skillful with insight and to wisely understand. And so here's what he says. If you do these things, if you will, with firm resolution, with motivation, move in and take the things that God said, And if you'll do it with a courageous heart and with obedience to God's word, the result in your life is going to be this, that you are going to be constantly growing in your faith and in your walk. And you're going to understand what life is all about and how life works. Listen, if you have those things, you're unstoppable. Nothing will be able to stop you in this world or in the world to come. Now, in the rest of the chapter, he basically uh, gives them instruction to gather provisions Uh, for for the the, the journey that they're about to go on. He gives instruction to the two and a half tribes that had already received their land. And then uh, in the final verses there, it talks about the allegiance that the new generation makes with Joshua. And you can read ahead on that on your own. Um, And we'll uh, resume in chapter two of our study of Joshua next week. But as we close and the musicians can come, the Bible says that God knew you before the world was even formed. The Bible says that he knows the number of the hairs that are on your head, and not one of them falls to the ground without you knowing it. Now, for me, that means he's got to be with me an awful lot of times, because I've got a whole lot more forehead than I used to. The Bible says that his thoughts towards you are more in number than the grains of sand that are by the seashore. I want you to think about that for a minute. How many grains of sand are in one handful of sand? Now multiply that by all the sand on all the beaches, on all the coastline of the whole world. And God says that his thoughts towards you are more in number than those things. Now those numbers are dizzying to me. They're, They're beyond what I can comprehend and understand. And for God to even have that many thoughts about anything is is amazing. But for him to be able to look at you tonight, Put your name right in there. 
and understand that God has those thoughts towards you and for you. And then couple that with this, that the Bible says that before you were even born, God already knew what it was that he wanted to do with your life. What it is that he created you for to be and to do the thing that will bring him the most glory and bring you the most joy. And here's his will for your life. I'm going to tell you right now. His will for your life is to bring you into that thing. That you might be what he made you to be and that you might enjoy this life to the fullest possible potential that you can. But here's the thing. He's not going to bring you into that unprepared. And some of you tonight might be facing things, going through things in your life that you say, my life is so far from reflecting in any way the thing that God made it to be. Can I tell you that maybe the very things that you're going through right now are preparing you for the destiny that he has for you. It's what he wants. It's what he wants to do in your life. His promise is that he's going to finish what he began and that once he does in your life what he wants to, you will be invincible. And the territory that he's designed for you to take is very good. It's a good land. It's a land of blessing that he has for you. And here's what you do. You say, I want it. You fasten your eyes upon that prize, saying, Lord, I want your will, your best in my life. And then you'll be immersed in the word. You'll be obedient to him. And God's going to do for you the same thing he did for Joshua and that he did for his people. Because the reason he made you was so that you might enter into that thing that he made you for. Father, we pray tonight that you would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. That you would make us able to receive the abundance of all that you want to do. And that we might, in our hearts, be prepared and ready for what those things are. We ask, Lord, if there's any obstacles. Lord, we ask if there's any deadness, if we've come into a rut in our faith. Perhaps we're wandering in a wilderness of sorts. We pray, Lord, that you might bring us into that land of promise. That you would increase our faith. That you would give us a vision of victory. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us the strength to stand and to move into the promises that you give. Father, we can do nothing on our own. But we know that you give power to do all things. And so tonight we stand upon the promise, Lord, that you want to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So I pray for each person here, Lord, that they would know you in greater measure, that they would be moved into the center of your will, and that they would be conformed into the image of Christ, and that your spirit would be successful in that thing that you're doing within us. Have your way in us, Father, and teach us, Lord, that we might be prosperous and have good success. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.